Um, so again, the reason I had our deacon read from uh, Genesis chapter 3 was because I'm going to spend time there. That's where Jesus goes in John chapter 18. So the title of today's message is Christ Revisits the Garden. I also wanted him to read Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters the burning bush and God tells Moses what his name is. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. He declares himself to be the I Am. And I also wanted him to read from 2 Kings chapter 1, where um, Elijah is on a hill and the uh, king has sent uh, to have Elijah brought to himself. And he sends a captain with his 50 up the hill and uh, Elijah calls fire from heaven and it destroys the captain with his 50s. That is salient to today's message also. So let's, let's read John chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 13 and a half verses. John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus ofttimes resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to an ass. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might behold your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Um, I wanted to first mention, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the differences in the gospel. Uh, Textual criticism is a subject I don't much care for because to even, to me to even speak of it is to lend some credibility to it, which I don't appreciate at all. Um, Critics would say that Mark relied upon Peter when Mark wrote his gospel. And so when they use that kind of language, I don't appreciate it because they are saying that Mark's gospel is his gospel, as though that was something that Mark wrote, and it wasn't, in fact, inspired of God. It's not Mark's gospel, it's God's gospel. And I have a question, if Mark relied upon Peter, um, why didn't Peter write a gospel? God didn't uh, have Peter write a gospel. But this very thinking that maybe somebody relied upon somebody else for a gospel makes me think, well, golly, I wonder if he made some mistakes. I wonder if he left a few things out, or maybe because he wasn't sure about something, he included things that really didn't happen. So that way of thinking, I think when people introduce this idea of textual criticism, in my mind it's a work of Satan because they're essentially undermining the veracity of Scripture in every jot and tittle. It is the Word of God. 
we know the Bible tells us that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And so some critics opine that, well, Moses relied upon his predecessor who relied on his predecessor. And so you go all the way back to Adam. Adam told Seth, you know, and Seth told Enos, and Enos told Canaan, and Canaan told Mahalalel, and then Jared, and then Noah to Abraham, and then Isaac. And so the word was passed down, and everybody here has probably played the telephone game. So you know that if you start with a message and you tell it to the fellow sitting next to you, by the time it gets back to you, it can be substantially different than what you really started out with. And so if that is true, that, that it was passed down by oral tradition, then maybe Moses left some things out because the message didn't get to him, or maybe he included some things, got some things mixed up, like how the earth was really created. Maybe it was created over millions and billions of years, and perhaps evolution has some credibility. I mean, after all, these people were scientifically illiterate. illiterate. Therefore, the things that they included would have been consistent with what their scientific knowledge was of the time. I'm making excuses because we know this is not true. Deuteronomy was written by Moses, and it speaks of his death. Moses apparently wrote his own obituary, before he died, and so we would have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? People then would say, well, of course he couldn't have written it. It must have been written by somebody else, even though God says Moses wrote it. Um, But then again, they won't even question why or how Peter and John wrote about the end of the earth, because that hasn't happened yet either, and yet they don't seem to wonder about that. So there's all sorts of uh, contradictions with this very way of thinking. The only way we can appreciate that the Bible is God's word is that he reveals to us, places upon our heart, the idea and the truth that he is the author of the Bible. And that's exactly what the Bible says of itself. John 3.16, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture, not just portions of it, not just things that maybe Moses didn't write or some of this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, he, the Lord tells us, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So God worked in the hearts of men through the Holy Ghost, and what they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write. Now, in 1 John chapter 1, the first five verses there, we get this idea, if you don't understand what's written, that these guys wrote only the things that they witnessed. In 1 John chapter 1, the first five verses, it says, "...that which was from the beginning..." which we have heard, they don't tell you who they heard it from, though, here, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Keep in mind that when a Christian sees something, he sees things that other people don't see because God reveals truth to them through the Holy Ghost. So you can't just read this superficially. Verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it. They saw the life. Lots of people saw Jesus walking around, but they didn't see life. And so they said, for for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father when it was manifested unto us, God revealed it unto them, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have, quote, heard of him and declare unto you. He's telling us that the things that are in the Scripture, they have heard from God. It's not just a simply a matter of, hey, we were there, we saw, we wrote down what we, what we saw. 
But if you think of it that way, then you're liable to think what people will often say is, well, in the four Gospels, we have four witnesses of the same event, and each fellow saw a little something different, and so that's what they wrote down. And so there's a question as to the credibility of each of the four witnesses because their things are a little different. Which one is truth? They're all true. They include exactly what God wanted each one to include. In John chapter 21, verse 25, the Lord says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. I think we can appreciate that. If God included all of the details about what he did and how he um, spoke everything into existence and all of the scientific realities associated with that, we'd all be wheeling the Bible to church with a dolly every Sunday morning. He puts in here what he wants us to know and wants us to appreciate. There is nothing more in here and nothing less than what God himself wants. And he says that in Revelation, in his, um, the first copyright, when he says, if you add anything to the word or take anything from it, he shall add unto you the plagues that are written herein. God's got a copyright on it. It includes exactly what he wants. So we would ask ourselves with this thinking of, uh, uh, that these men were eyewitnesses and wrote only that, we would ask ourselves why John didn't give us more details about what happened in the garden. He was, in fact, an eyewitness to it. He was with James and Peter when Jesus went deeper into the garden, having left the eleven, eight disciples behind. He went in a little further with them. Then he left them um, there and told them to watch and pray that they fall not into temptation. And then he went by himself a little further to pray with the Father. And yet John writes nothing about Jesus' agony in the garden. Sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, falling on the ground on his face as he prayed to the Father. The other Gospels contain uh, those uh, pieces of information. The Gospel of John does not include that. The Gospel of John says nothing about the angel strengthening the Lord as he began to drink from the cup his Father had given him. Both of those are found in the Gospel of Mark and Luke. John does not even mention the name of the garden or the name of the mountain, a mount upon which they went. And we know that it was upon the Mount of Olives that they went and into the garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press, which is indicative of how Christ would suffer as he bore the iniquities of his people. John doesn't include that simple detail in there. Surely he knew what it was called. Now, why does he not include these things? Because God, the author of the Bible, wants this gospel to focus on his glory. And so that is what the primary thought, the primary thing I want you to walk away with today is about how the glory of God is revealed in this particular gospel, particularly as he went to the mount. So John um, chapter 18 here opens with God telling us that after Jesus has spoken the words of the preceding discourse, which was a very long discourse. It started all the way back in chapter 13. It was a discourse that contained words of assurance, words of security, words of comfort, and words of love that Jesus, having been sent by the Father, would protect his disciples and keep them in him, that they would be united with him, united with God, united with each other in Christ and in love. It contained words where he shared with them that God the Father has loved them as he loves himself, as he loves the Son, from before the foundation of the world. And it includes words that every one of us here should own because he says, I pray not for those 
here, but those that would believe on me through their um, preaching, through their words. So it includes all of the elect. So that's a very important section of Scripture for us to appreciate, all of the things that Jesus shared from John chapter 13 on. Um, But you need to appreciate the whole Bible. Now, in that discourse from John 13 through 17 here, he told his disciples at least three times that he was the I am. In John chapter 13, verse 19, he specifically says, Now I tell you before it come, I'm telling you what's going to happen here, I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, that ye may believe that I am. That's John 13, verse 19, that ye may believe that I am. He's told them at least three times that he is the I am. Words, he told them several times that the Father had sent him, the Father has sent him, and that he is going to return to the Father. His life is not going to end in a tomb. He's going back to the Father. He has said that to him several times. At one point, I think I I even counted the times and shared it in one of the uh, Sunday messages. He's told them that he's been sent by the Father and that he's going to return to the Father. And he also shared with him that he wanted them to be with him where he was. So obviously we understood that in a spiritual context, that united with him, we are also with him in glory. We reign with him in glory, and we sit with him in his throne, in his throne with him as he sits in his Father's throne. But in a literal sense here, he's demonstrating that. He's asked them to come with him as they cross the brook Kidron. And so as we continue here, the darkness of the night is enveloping them. Jesus leads his disciple across the brook Kidron into a garden. Now, we should appreciate that there are a lot of places in and around Jerusalem where this scene might have taken place. But God, who is ever glorified in everything that he does and who is sovereign over all things, chose this place. He chose a garden at this moment in time to teach the world that our salvation rests exclusively in him, that our salvation rests exclusively in him. In verse 4 of John chapter 18, Jesus says, quote, it says here rather, Jesus knowing all things, not some things, not kind of about the things, but knowing all things that should come upon him went forth. Knowing not just the generalities of what should come upon him. Remember we just read in John, excuse me, in Genesis chapter 3, He is the seed of the woman that is spoken about in Genesis chapter 3. He knows that his heel is going to be bruised, um, but he knows every detail of what that means, of what it's going to mean to have his heel bruised. He's told his disciples a number of times, he must needs go to Jerusalem, be betrayed, crucified, and raise again from the dead. He's told them everything that's going to happen, not everything, but in a broad sense, but Jesus himself knows all things that are going to happen with him. It was Christ who was in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 who spoke with Adam, spoke with Eve, and spoke with Satan about um, sharing with them uh, the gospel. He is the author of all the law, the prophets, and the Psalms which spake about him. He's the author of the entire scripture. He knows everything, every detail that is going to transpire. All the events that unfold here, they happened all according to the determinate counsel, to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ was part of that counsel that took place in eternity past that laid all of this stuff out. 
with respecting the foreknowledge of God, he is part of the Godhead. Scripture says that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He knows everything, every detail that's going to happen to him, and he knows every detail that will be carried out by the wicked hands and wicked hearts of men. These people will Christ, who is judge over all the earth, will rightly judge and hold them accountable for what they have done. So again, in this verse here, I'm quoting from Acts, I think it's chapter 4, chapter 2 rather. The sovereignty of God does not um, prohibit men from being held accountable for their actions. So it all happened according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God and carried out by wicked hands of men. There is no contradiction here. These men are going to be held accountable for what they have done. There is no excuse for what they did. So the sin problem began in a garden, and God deals with it in a garden. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, the Scripture tells us that we are God's husbandry, meaning God is the gardener. So God uses this analogy all through the Bible. Um, Mary Magdalene, in John chapter 20, verse 15, sees Jesus after the resurrection, and she thinks he, the word says, supposing him to be the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. He is the gardener in a spiritual sense, and so she's supposed correctly. Um, the first man, Adam, the first man, Adam, fell in sin in the garden. The last Adam, who was Jesus Christ, rose from the dead in a garden. Jesus was bound, buried, and resurrected in a garden. In the Garden of Eden, by the disobedience of one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men. That's Romans chapter 5. Here in the garden in John uh, chapter 18, we see that the God-man, Jesus Christ, is obedient unto his Father. And through his obedience, his willful submission to his Father, Jesus was bound, allowing himself to be led to the cross through which many were and are made righteous. That's also Romans chapter 5. In the first garden... Man sinned, in the first garden man sinned, and God sought out man. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3 where the, where the Lord went walking and looking for Adam. So in the first garden man sinned and God sought out man, initiating the process of reconciliation. In this garden, men sought out he who proved and identified himself as God with the purpose to kill him. In the first garden... God introduces the concept of substitution, slaying an animal to cover the nakedness of our first parents. In this garden, God offers himself as the sinner's substitute, saying in verse 8, If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. He offers himself up in a substitutionary way, which was introduced in the first garden. And so the scene unfolds here. We read that the mount was where Jesus often resorted. So Judas knew where Jesus might be found that night. Jesus and his disciples had stayed on the mount since they came to Jerusalem in observance of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Luke 21, 37 tells us that, that that's where they spent their, their nights. The place was crowded. I, we talked about that before, how crowded Jerusalem was during that particular feast. All of the men of um, Israel were required to present themselves before the Lord, and so the place was crowded. So Jesus was resorting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. It is in the biblical calendar, Nisan 14th, the day the Passover lamb is to be slain. Jesus knows all things that should come. And knowing all things that should come, 
He has brought his disciples with him across the brook Kidron to see his glory. Now, in the Greek there, the word brook means torrent. Kidron means dark waters. So we should appreciate that with respect to the Christian, as it says in Acts 14.22, that it is through much tribulation does the saint, does the elect, enter into the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of symbolism taking place here too. In verse 3, in John 18, in verse 3, it says that Judas comes with a great multitude. Now, what, do you th- what is the imagery that you have of that scene in the garden? It's not a very big place, geographically speaking. How many people do you think came there with Judas to take Christ? The Lord uses the word band twice. It uses it in verse, um, let's see here, uh, verse 3 and also in verse 12. The Lord tells us that twice in this gospel. Not the other gospels, but in this gospel. What is a band? Well, in the Greek, it's the word cohort. Cohort. It is one-tenth the part of a legion. He's got 600 plus Romans there to take Jesus. Plus, the Jews have come with him as well. Plus, scribes and Pharisees. There is a great multitude of people coming to take Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28, Acts 4, 27, 28, Peter's praying here and he says, For of a truth... Against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. The Jews and the Gentiles are together here, going to take Christ. Verse 28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine for to be done. Sovereignty of God, responsibility of man. They have brought with them... Lanterns and torches to find the Son of God, S-U-N, Son of God, (laughs) He who is the light of the world. Surely God is illustrating here the spiritual blindness of men, that they would come seeking the light of the world with lanterns and torches. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus, um, having um, dealt with the issue of the adulterous woman, is speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he says to them in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Rather than follow Jesus, they lead him like a lamb to the slaughter unto their own destruction. They are bringing weapons against he who spoke all things into existence. Keep in mind who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus spoke everything into existence. And they're coming after Him with, I have this vision of my mind of some, some B-horror movie where they're coming up the hill at night you know, with pitchforks and staves. It, you know, they're they're going to take God. So they're bringing weapons against he who spoke everything into existence. They're bringing weapons against he who flooded the entire earth and destroyed all air-breathing life, save those that were on the ark. They are bringing weapons against he who rained fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast roundabout, turning them into ashes as an example, as those that would live ungodly. 
They are bringing weapons against he who twice sent fire down from heaven upon the captain with his 50 that would command Elijah to come down from a hill and appear before King Ahaziah, consuming them. This is who have they, they're coming again. Why do the people rage and the people imagine a vain thing? They are bringing weapons against he who not only stayed the rotation of the earth, but reversed it 10 degrees. And so here we are here in verse 4, this parallel to what we see taking place in 2 Kings chapter 1. In verse 4, John 18, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, goes forth. Knowing everything that's going to transpire, he goes forth and says unto them, Whom seek ye? Jesus, knowing all things, could have departed. He could have slipped through the crowds as he has done in the past. He could have misidentified himself. He could have told them, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, he went that way. You just missed him. But he doesn't do any of that. Knowing all things, he knows that his hour has come, and he goes forth. And he says to them, whom seek ye? In verse 5, we can appreciate, it says here, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I want us to appreciate one thing when he identifies himself of Jesus of Nazareth. There should be no question as to who he is, where he's from, and who was on the cross, because that is exactly what Pilate insisted be nailed above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So there's no question here that this Jesus of Nazareth is going to be the Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. So they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. They are all of them spiritually blind. Jesus taught daily in the temple, ministering to people. Yet in the hour of darkness, which it is now, when the need of man is at the greatest, they don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. Not even Judas, who had been empowered by God to cast out devils and heal men, did not know who he was on that occasion. After he identifies himself, that's when Judas is going to go kiss him and betray him. Now, there are a lot of people in the category of Judas. In Hebrew chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, it says, People who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come have fallen away. Tasting is not the same thing as eating and digesting, which we are to do with God's word. They have fallen away. And Scripture tells us in Hebrews 10, 29, that to them shall be a much sorer punishment because they have trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing. So there's a warning here to everyone with respect to what we do with Christ. Here in John 18 is where everything kind of turns, and this is where I want us to appreciate God's glory. Jesus identifies himself as the I Am. That's a name that every single Jew should know and understand exactly who he is saying he is. It's the name that God gave Moses to tell the Israelites who he was. That's Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He says, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you. Jesus has told us how many times that his father has sent him, and he's declared himself to be I am. Back in John 8, 24, he says, If you believe not that I am, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, if ye believe not that I am, ye shall die in your sins. If you do not believe that Jesus is I am, ye shall die in your sins. He's already told these people that, and now he has told them, standing there 
surrounded by a great multitude, he says, I am. In verse 6 of John 18, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Here we see Jesus is proving that he is I am, that he is God. He could have rained fire from heaven, in which case the witness would have been dead. (laughs) He could have done a lot of things. They just fell backwards and went down. The cohort and the great multitude all went backward and fell to the ground. I wonder what those Roman soldiers must have thought. They're part of the legion. They fell back and went to the ground. And so Jesus gives them a minute to digest what has just taken place. By his command, he and his disciples are the only ones standing in the midst of that great multitude. As he has said, he will lose none of those whom the Father hath given him. In verse 7, Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. There is no light has gone off in terms of their appreciation or understanding. Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 8, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. This is the second time he's told this multitude that he is God, and he's proven it to them. He twice identifies himself as God and has given them a demonstration of his power in a way that should let them all know that they have no power over him. They have no power over him. He has demonstrated that. And everything that follows is because Jesus willfully laid down his life just as he had told his disciples he would do. I have told you all these things in advance that you may believe that I am. In John 10, 18, he says, No man taketh it from me, meaning my life. No man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Peter then cuts off a man's ear. What does Jesus do? He recovers the ear and puts it back on the man's head, and he heals him. Jesus, who hath made the seeing eye and the hearing ear, heals a man who has come to take his life. Jesus knows that his death must take place, and we see here that he willfully lays down his life and that no one took it from him. He puts a man's ear back on his head. He heals him so the man can regain his strength because he's come to take Jesus to his death. Jesus willfully lays down his life. And everyone there was a witness to what took place. Now think forward when Jesus is going to be speaking with Pilate. There's going to be a comment there about Jesus being God. And Pilate is going to get nervous. I wonder how much of this Pilate heard, because it seems like he ought not to be a superstitious man, and then just because that statement comes up, he gets a little nervous. I think some of that cohort, word got around what happened in that garden, and that was God's intent, that the word would get out and word would get around what has happened. He certainly brought his disciples in to witness that very thing. So I think Pilate heard some of the things that took place in the garden. Events are going to move very quickly from this point forward. Now, After Peter cuts off the man's ear, who is a servant of the high priest, you would think that they would have been particularly antagonistic towards Peter and they would have arrested him and taken him off as well. And yet he goes free. Why is that? Because Jesus was ever in command of the situation and he had told the multitudes to let his disciples go their way. And they did, including Peter. 
Again, Jesus was ever in control of the situation. There is no excuse whatsoever for what those people did to Jesus. They saw the power of God emanate from he who said he was God. And yet by wicked hands, they bound him and led him to be crucified. There is nothing, we should appreciate this, there is nothing that turns the heart of man to God. No act of kindness or charity will turn a man's heart to God, nor will any threat of death turn a man's heart to God. The only thing that turns a man's heart to God is God himself. The fact that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is only because God shines that light in our hearts. And he tells us that truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Verse 6, that we might see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is because God shines that light into our hearts. Salvation, knowing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom God has sent, is by the grace of God only. And again, in John 17, Jesus prayed that that would be true for his disciples, and it is true. And so as we leave the garden, a sword is sheathed, for Jesus is opening the way to himself, the tree of life, which will, uh, through the cross, which will be through the cross by faith in him. The way was previously blocked by the cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every which way. Jesus, as he says here, when he asked the question in verse 11, he will drink the cup his father has given him, and he will make a way by which men might approach the father through him. So the sword in this garden is sheathed. And so in this inspired account, which is unique to the Gospel of John, the Lord sets before us his glory. At no point was Jesus, who is the great I Am, not in complete control. What he did was willfully lay down his life for the elect, drinking the cup of his Father's wrath for the benefit of the elect, that we might be reconciled to God by faith in him. Amen. Amen.